The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, take a break from DNR TV and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan here to announce show number 158 with guest Chris Sells, recorded live Thursday, January 5th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering public and private hands-on classes in VBNet 2005 and ASPNet 2.0. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASPNet development. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express. Crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your developer experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who asks the question, which is more dense, Chris Sell's brain or my ass? Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome to the first .NET Rocks episode of 2006. This is Carl Franklin at the diner booth with uh, myself and my microphone, and out there in Vancouver's Richard. Hi, Richard. Here I am in the happy rain land. And uh, may I be the first to wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year? You wouldn't be the first, but Happy New Year you too, bub. Yep, yep, yep. And um, it was uh, just a, an amazing time of rest and reconnection with my family for me. I had a great, great vacation. Goodness knows we needed it. Got some toys. This was the year for toys at Christmas. Last year, we were pretty much uh, not doing anything. And I never thought that I would... G- g- I, I, you know, here's a guy, me, who canceled cable because it sucks, you know? Right. So the only reason I've had channels 2 through 13 for the last three or four years is because when you get a cable modem in your house, you have to have channels 2 through 13. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I, we, find, we did, and, and we did everything. We got a 32-inch LCD to replace the CRT TV in the bedroom, and we got a 42-inch plasma for the living room to replace an old clunker out there. And you know, that's a significant thing because we don't do like the entertainment center thing, but we've now we're like full blown into it. I you haven't crossed over. I have I've crossed the dark side. I mean digital cable, HDTV, 
you know, 170 channels or something like that. And, you know, there's a, there's out of the 170 channels I've learned, there's about three or four or five, maybe that I like, but even (laughs) so five channels, you know, of really good stuff is not, not bad. I mean, I don't have time to watch five channels as it is. Right. Right. So yeah, we got a big old 42 inch plasma honker in the, uh, in the living room. Nice. We haven't we haven't gone so far as to have all the audiophile hardware. I mean, the audio system is surround sound, but it's basically one of those, you know, four hundred dollar everything in the box subwoofer, right? You know, re- receiver unit and and everything speakers. But we How are long before the media center PC shows up. Well, we have a media center PC, and we were using ah. that. So I actually, at your recommendation, Richard, I I went out and I got one of these. Um, the only way that you can truly hitch up VGA or your computer to uh, a plasma or, or a high-definition TV is through this little box, this uh, converter that converts the, the – you plug in your RGB cable on one side. And on the other side is the analog uh, video split. And I'm not even sure what this is, but there's basically three plugs, and some of yeah, them component have – Component video. Component video, that's right. That's right. Which is one step down from HDMI. Yeah, but is, not much of one, really. Yeah. Yeah, but isn't it an analog signal or is it a digital signal? All TV signals to the TV are analog signals. All right, so even HDMI is analog? Yeah. It is. Oh, yeah. Huh. I thought the D in HT, HDMI meant digital. Yeah. Okay. So does the D in HDTV, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's definition. Yeah, I, well, they they play these games with what's really digital and what really isn't. Okay. And I'm telling you, it really isn't. All right. Well, anyway, I don't want to take up a lot of time telling you about my TV, but uh, I'm I'm a little bit jazzed about it. And you are the toy boy. And we let's face it, our our listeners are toy junkies just like us. So you bet. Yeah, we'll talk some more about that on Mondays this week. You bet. So, what about you? What was your uh, what was your New Year like? Well, you know, low-key. Everybody stayed home for a change, right? We had enough of the travel. We went over to the neighbors for New Year's. Nothing too elaborate. And, and, you know, people keep thinking, well, the toy boy must get great gadgets for Christmas. (laughs) And I'm like, well, um, no, because I'm not allowed to buy for myself. Yeah, right. Christmas time is fun for me because I help a lot of people get good gifts for their loved ones. I can imagine it's very hard to buy a gift for you. And it's impossible. I don't even like buying gifts for me. It's it's just outrageously difficult. So uh, now I got some nice things from my kids, which I enjoy a great deal. But they're dad things. Yeah. They're not toy boy things. Yeah. And they could be. I mean, you know, it's the it's because it's from your kids. That's what's great about it. For sure. Yeah, I got a whole bunch of that stuff. Anyway, uh, let's move on to some email. This is a uh, remember our old friend Gustavo Cavalcanti. Yes. Who uh, started a .NET user group. Uh, the idea was born on the road trip, and he went out and started a user group in in, uh, in the middle of California out there. So he says, Hi, Carl. 2005 was a great year. I learned about .NET Rocks, started scratching the surface of what I needed to learn, met people, and basically opened up the horizon of my career. Thank you for that. I wish you, Richard, Jeff, and your families a wonderful 2006. May 2006 be the best year of your lives so far, Gustavo. I thought that was nice. 
That's very nice, and I think you may be right. 2006 is looking to be a pretty darn good this year. This is going to be a fabulous year, and not just for us uh, with .NET Rocks, because we do have new shows. And later on in the week, you're going to hear uh, Hansel Minutes, which is a, a talk with Scott Hanselman we're going to do every week. Fabulous stuff. Plus, uh, on Thursday, we're going to release DNR TV, episode one. Uh, I'm very excited about it. This is going to be Miguel a, Castro, right? Miguel Castro. He's going to write uh, web controls right before your eyes. Awesome. And he's not even taking advantage of like some of the magic in Visual Studio 2005. He's down to the metal. I mean, he's doing really good stuff. Uh, anyway, so this is this one uh, came from Santiago Cepas. Cepas. Sorry, Santiago, if I ruined your name. C-E-P-A-S. Could be a Kepas. I don't know. Hello, everybody. First of all, congratulations for your superb job. I really enjoy listening to .NET Rocks while commuting here in Madrid. That's, Far out. That's in Oregon, isn't it? Um, <laughs> no. I just finished listening to your last show with Andrew Brust. I want to comment on another way to call OLAP from a stored procedure without needing to use the CLR. We just have to do an open query to our OLAP server using the MS OLAP OLADB provider, something like this. And I'm not going to go through everything, but he says basically select from open row set in a parentheses and then a single quote MS OLAP dot one single quote comma. And then what looks like a, a data source equals localhost initial catalog equals your database name. And then a single quote a comma, and then your select statement, uh, blah, blah, blah. This is, I'm, but that's I'm, in MDX. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of figuring that this isn't translating really well on radio. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to post this on my blog. Sure. And, of course, the trick with open query in SQL Server is that it's actually able to make just a straight OLEDB call to anything. You can query anything you want through open query because all it's doing is taking the statement passing it on to the OLEDB data source. Yeah. And this is, since uh, OLAP server can be an, OLA, uh, an OLEDB data source, you can do that. Yep. Cool. And finally, from Mark, I was just listening to the show, and I heard you talking about the bookmarkable M4B format you create for iTunes. iTunes and the iPod now support bookmarks with all podcasts, even if they are encoded as MP3. Just thought you might like to know. Hmm. I didn't know that. Thank you, Mark. And uh, I don't know what that means in terms of what we should do. Uh, I, you know, I'm of the mind that once you start offering the show in a particular format, you really have to keep offering it in that format. Yeah, that's true. I wouldn't want to plug, pull the plug. Well, and you've got it completely automated now anyway, right? It is. It's completely automated. Right. All right. Well, Richard, let's, uh, let's introduce our guest, our friend. He's been on the show several times. He has co-hosted the show. I don't think anybody has, any guest has been on more than he has. I think he wants my job. <laughs> Will you please welcome again, Chris Sells. Hi, Chris. <laughs> hey, Carl. I don't want your job, but, you know, any of those ad revenues that are just hanging around extra, that would be really cool. Okay. <laughs> now that I'm a Microsoft employee and on a fixed um Income, you know, anything extra, just sign my way, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> now, whatever happened to Microsoft employees getting options and fun things like that? They don't give us options anymore. In fact, um, Microsoft kind of led the way in not giving options. They just give stocks. Of course, they give significantly fewer of them than they used to. Right? I, think, right. I think what you failed to mention is the reason they don't give options because nobody wants them. Well, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, Microsoft has very much turned, in, its, in terms of its stock price, has very much turned into, you know, your local utility, right? We are yep. the, the Windows utility. And, yeah. and the stock price moves accordingly. And it doesn't help that, you know, we can grow the size of a Google every quarter and still not move the stock price, right? <laughs> I mean, what can you do? <laughs> Hey uh, Chris, are you on a uh, on a speakerphone right now? No, I'm on a, um, on my headset on my cell phone. Why? You must be uh, in a small boxy room. I am. That's how I keep my kids from um, disturbing us. Yeah, it's it's. I can hear the echo. It sounds Sorry. kind of sounds kind of interesting. Now, I have, uh, you know, a trained professional such as myself can hear these things. By the way, can you pick up that pin that you just dropped? Can you pick <laughs> that pin up? All right. So I was listening to you guys chat in your little intro, and um, I want to know what the heck you're doing flipping through TV channels if you've got a Media Center PC, Carl. The Media Center PC isn't connected. The, the Media Center PC is not connected? The Media Center PC is not connected yet. It has, I, I've, only, I've only had it connected um, through the previous stereo, but I have not connected it up to this system yet. So once I had Mr. PC, I could live. I could not live without it. I mean, the idea that I would care what show the West or what channel the West Wing plays at—it's like caring what phone number my friends have. I mean, well, you, you're you're assuming that I care about the West Wing at all. So well, I'm I'm assuming you care about watching shows as opposed to watching channels. Who cares what the channel it is that your shows are on? But I find that the shows that I like tend to be on the same channel. You know. I, so. You're speaking to the converted here for me, Chris. He just hasn't gotten the idea of what PVR is all about. Yeah, about I haven't. What time I just television is like. I just got this thing, so dude, you have yeah. no idea. In a month, he doesn't know you'll, yet. You'll never even notice what channels the stuff is on, right? And it just doesn't matter. I mean, it's like saying I really love this IP address. I don't care what they put up there, but this IP address is my favorite. <laughs> well, you know. But some IP addresses have a tendency to spew more crap than other IP addresses. So I, I'm still in that model, in that frame of mind. So yeah, you're right. Uh, I I never had a TiVo, you know. I and pretty much the reason is I didn't really like anything that was on TV. And what I'm finding the stuff that I like is like the the high definition Discovery Channel and and like the uh, jazz concerts and PBS and and that kind of stuff. Um. You know the Science Channel, so so those are the kind of things that I watch. I'm I'm not into like dramas, I'm not into uh, you know CSI, not into reality TV. There isn't really much that I like that that I guess you could say is fiction. You know, it just doesn't so appeal to me. What I found is that before my I had a replay TV. I was the TiVo boy. I was a replay TV boy before my Media Center PC. Yeah. And I found that I never watched TV. I would read a lot. And that was fine. I liked reading. I have a giant library, and it's cool. But what I found was that occasionally, you know, good stuff would happen. I just wasn't willing to rearrange my life so that sure. I could catch the good stuff. And then I had the replay TV, and I could. what I found is that there was a ton of good stuff on. It's just that the percentage likelihood that, you know, when I sat down ready to watch something, that something good would be on was very low. Yeah. And even if when there was something good on, it would be, you know, ruined by commercials. Right. Yeah, or you got into it halfway through, or any of those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, 
Carl, your life is about to change, and you could never go back. And in fact, it's funny too because I mean, it's just the it's the exact same thing as podcasting, right? Podcasting right. is somebody had good things to say, and they put it out into the universe, and you decided you want to hear what those good things are, and just bring it down to me whenever it's available. It's the exact right. same thing. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, you're you are preaching the choir. I understand the technology; it just hasn't, you know turned into practicality yet so it will i'll we'll report about this uh probably in a couple of months and and uh we'll we'll hook back up but that's not why we we asked you to come here and talk we want to talk about model driven development and i got to be honest chris i have no idea what this is so the floor is all yours i know that you've been into this idea at least since november if not before and uh tell us all what model driven development is and why we care so, uh, Carl, model-driven development uh, or model-driven applications, MD, the MDA, this is not a new idea. This is not something Microsoft invented. Right. Um, this is, in fact, something that's been going on in one form or another for decades. Okay. I mean, ever since we pulled ourselves out of Fortran and started, you know, drawing uh, circles and arrows on whiteboards to describe to each other the kinds of systems that we wanted... We've been thinking about the idea, gosh, if I could just take this whiteboard and execute it on my computer, that would save me a whole lot of typing. So this is nothing new. We've had designers for class libraries ever since Visio and maybe even before. Is this what we're talking about? Is Or is there some sort of new revelation about model-driven development as a as a genre of, of design tools? Well, okay. Now, think of, I mean, you know, let's go way back before... You know, Visual Studio ever existed. I'm, I mean, I'm talking decades, right? Okay. I mean, the the idea that you could, in fact, this, these ideas are the things that directly spawned, you know, the need for the universal uh, modeling language, right? right. UML, mm-hmm. right? The idea that if we standardized a way to write down our pictures, it was only one more small step where we could execute our pictures. Okay. And in fact, that's what most developers think of when they think of model-driven anything. Yeah, I guess the first time I ever saw anything like that was the Next computer. You remember that thing? Oh, absolutely. I, I love the Next computer. I mean, the, the idea that we could take uh, two bits of color, right, white, yeah. black, and two grayscale, and produce the most gorgeous user interface that I had seen, and it took a decade for anyone else to catch up to them. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I was a big Dex fan. Yeah. And they sort of had that model-driven... I don't know if it was development or if it was system-oriented things, but I remember seeing some demos of uh, of somebody putting some software together just by dragging and dropping some bits and setting some, changing some settings and drawing lines and things. Well, I mean, what what the Next had, and of course, you know, uh, Windows had this too with Visual Basic, was the the interface builder where you could lay out UIs and then. Um, you know, in Visual Basic, you double-click on something and say, oh, somebody changed this selection in this combo box, or somebody clicked this button, and now I have to write a little bit of code to hook up this part of the UI to that part of the UI. And the interface builder actually took it a step further and did things like saying, well, you know, we're going to hook up this list box to this text box, and when things change here, it's going to change here. I mean, they had, um, they had data binding, and they had the ability to kind of interactively via lines and boxes on your form, yep. be able to hook these things up. And in some ways, this, you know, this thing you did in Interface Builder was a model. It allowed you to declaratively say to the system, you know, these two things are connected. Yeah. And that was useful and interesting and important. And if you take that all the way, 
you might be scared of getting something like, you know, the old cave systems where you dumped big pictures into the front end of a cave system and you pressed a button and out would come your whole system. And yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen those kinds of systems, Carl, or well, used them. Not in that kind of to- totality, I haven't. Um, I mean, I've seen designers, certainly, for software, but I haven't ever seen, like, a real, really high-level case tool where you essentially say, I, w- I want this, this, and that, and bing, bam, boom, and the thing is done and complete and works. I mean, I've seen code generators, you know. I mean, so done and complete, you're right. We have had those systems for a long time. The whole it works thing, that's been a problem. Yeah. <laughs> when developers hear that word modeling, they, they immediately fuzz out because the industry has been kind of saying for a long time, hey, just draw your pictures and we'll handle the rest. Yeah. And, and publishing systems that propose to do that, and the problem is that you never get anything like what you really want out of it. Because we're so used to having complete control. I mean, every time we write an imperative line of code, we're not telling the computer, you know, here's what I want done. We're telling the computer, here's how to, here's, here's how to do something. Like, go and do this thing. And how it gathers up into some other bigger task is none of your business. That's my business. Yeah. yeah Chris, uh, I can't, there's one thought that keeps crossing my mind and I can't, I can't put it off any longer. I mean, you're like a systems level bit twiddler guy. Why are you interested in drawing pictures and having it turn into code? That's funny you say that. I mean, you know, I've heard that before, and I've certainly written my share of lower level books and articles and given my share of talks with calm uh, goo in it and quids and HCL brackets and braces and all kinds of goo. But fundamentally, I don't see myself as... Uh, you know, system-level bit twiddler, although I have twiddled more than my share of bits in my life, <laughs> I actually see myself as an app guy. I see myself as somebody that cares about a technology only insofar as it can help you write better applications. And by better, I mean write the same application faster to be more robust, to be more maintainable, to be more deployable. You know, I care about... I've always cared, and in fact, my entire career has always been about what can we do to improve developers' lives? Mm-hmm. I, I want to argue with that. that. I mean, that's what I care about. I always have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at Microsoft, all of my jobs at Microsoft have been all about that. And I'm just in another one now. And so let's think about the movement from, you know, C and C++ to .NET. It would, let me just ask you, have you a little survey with you, Carl. Carl, would you say that moving from C and C++ to .NET was better? Well, not being a developer. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, was. you can't, no, argue, like you can't argue with that fact. I was, I, I was just saying that I'm asking, and you said it was. Now, tell me why. Why was it better? Well, obviously, um, the balance between power and productivity got really, really good. And... Typically, languages and you know development experience has been either on weighted on one side or the other. Uh, you know, with if you want ultimate control, you had to learn you know C plus plus, get closer to the metal, learn a whole bunch of things how to do it the computer's way. And I know that C plus plus is a step up from assembler, which is a step up from ones and zeros. But you know, C sharp allows the developer to be more productive, and at the same time have the kind of control that they need for the stuff that they're doing. 
and not have to worry so much about the uh, uh, about the things the computer cares about. Aha! So the not having to worry so much. I would argue that that's where the productivity gains come from. Sure. By putting a whole, I mean, as we move from ones and zeros to assembler to C to um, C sharp or to .NET or any managed environment, it's all about putting more and more of what's going on in the computer in the hands of somebody who writes a compiler or somebody who writes a library. Right. And the trick is to make it, to give the programmer enough control, but not bog them down with the details in, in, and that's that seems to be the trick. I mean, you've always had really high. I mean, look, v, VB one, right? Very high level, but you ran up against brick walls quickly. You didn't have the control that you needed when you needed it. So yeah. So so it was a. So when we moved from C plus plus to C sharp, developers lost that control. Yes, not C, all of the control, but some of it. Yeah. From C plus plus to C sharp, I think the only developers that lost control are those that were doing the things that you need to do. Down at the low, down at the level, but I think the apps developers uh, maintained the control for the most part. Yeah, so from and in fact, arguably VB6 developers got more control as sure. they moved to VB.net. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was about as we moved from ones and zeros in assembly and C and C plus plus to C sharp. It's all about um, increasing the level of abstraction. Yes. Right. You're thinking less and less about. The machines, and in fact, as soon as we moved from kernel mode programming into user mode programming, right when we started dealing with memory and stopped dealing with, um, you know, physical RAM, right, like individual addresses on on individual chips, right, and interrupt-driven programming and things like that. I mean, we have been increasing the level of abstraction the whole entire career of computer scientists. So you see, model-driven development as the sort of pinnacle of this. Oh, no, I wouldn't say it's the pinnacle. I'd say that... The next level? Um, I would say, well, who knows what the pinnacle is? If I knew what the pinnacle was... Yeah, you know. that's probably not the right word. <laughs> but I definitely think it will is it is a viable next step. Yeah. And it's hard to say that with a straight face because people have been telling developers that for so long. And they have, we have just this, this spectacularly large graveyard filled with people who have been pushing models from the top down. Right. And it just has never been, I mean, not never. If you have an extremely constrained family of systems, yeah, this is, this is what I was The models say. become the configurators, right? Well, if you've listened to earlier episodes of .NET Rocks, you've probably heard my interviews with Mark Miller, Chief Architect of Developer Express's Code Rush and Refactor products. But what you may not know is that Developer Express offers a full line of feature-complete visual components and IDE tools for Visual Studio.NET. To build stunning and flexible applications, you need feature-complete components, Components that work as expected each and every time. Developer Express's complete range of visual components will help you emulate today's most popular UIs without hassles or aggravation. Like all of their tools, the components are written in C-sharp and fully optimized for the .NET framework and all .NET languages. I have spent some time talking with Mark Miller about the architecture of their components, and I'm very impressed. 
Developer Express has taken the time up front to position their components as extremely powerful and, of course, agile, ready to adapt to the challenges that lie ahead. You also may not know that Developer Express offers a comprehensive reporting platform for Windows and the web. Extra Reports is fully integrated into the Visual Studio.net IDE and set the standard for ease of use and flexibility. With Extra Reports, you never have to cringe at the thought of having to design a report again. So take a look and see what Developer Express can do for you at www.devexpress.com. Chris, this reminds me of another thing, which I think you might be getting at, which is domain-specific languages. Sure. Is this uh, in a similar vein? Well, domain-specific languages are... Well, let's back up. Let me get back to domain-specific languages. All right. Because here's what I wanted to say. I mean, you know, this modeling from the top-down kind of, you will write these models or draw these pictures, and it will feed into the system in these ways. I mean, this hasn't been useful or helpful, but... Along the way, um, uh, the smarter developers, the developers that have, that listen to your show, frankly, those kinds of developers have been kind of pushing in a grassroots way into modeling. For example, every time somebody writes a code generator, they're going to have an input language that says, here's, here's some data that I want to drive the code generator. Yeah. Right, a code generator is just a thing that says, well, here, I've got some data that says here's what you want to happen. Here's the behavior, here's the whatever. And I'm just going to generate the code that makes the imperative lines of code appear and feed those to the system, but I'm not going to bother you with those. Right? Or every time we, um, you know, lay out a form, but we don't care about, you know, the serialization format of that form. I mean, as we move from... WinForms to Avalon, in WinForms, the serialization of the form was C-sharp code or VB code, but it was hidden in a function you were never supposed to look at and certainly you should never touch, mm-hmm. right? Because the designer had the complete control. Right. Likewise with, you know, as we move to Avalon, the serialization format of the designer is XAML, right. but it, in both ways, it's, I want to tell you what I want from the system. Now, in that case, it's a graphics designer laying things out and saying, I want the system to look like this. I don't care how you do it, but okay. make it look like this. I mean, that's, right. the whole, that's the whole point. And so what we're doing is every time we have one of these declarative, here's a bunch of stuff that I know about my system, and I'm going to tell it to you, Mr. Computer, and then you are going to make it happen. I don't care how you make it happen. So we're raising the level of abstraction. Right. Are you with me? Sure. No, sure. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, now that we've sort of defined what model-driven development is, there has to be a point behind all this. Obviously, some, you know, the things that are coming out uh, in a few years in Microsoft are, are what you're thinking about. Um, is there anything that you want to offer us in, in that regard? Oh, so now you're saying, could you give, it, give me ship dates? Well, no, I, I'm saying... Why Why is this something that you're interested? Obviously, this is part of what you do at Microsoft. This is your work. You know, what, what, kinds, of things, uh, what kinds of things are you working on that, that you, will make you interested in this in the first place? So it's interesting. Um, so I would say that while we have been talking about raising the level of abstraction, we have been talking about this idea of declarative versus imperative, right? A, a declarative thing is I'm going to tell the computer what I want and sure. how to do it. 
An imperative thing is, here's a line of code. Right. Right. And you just execute it, and I'll worry about the semantics. Yeah. And I would say that, to me, and I'm just a part of a bigger group, so I'm just talking about me, but to me, it's about as much as we can tell the computer what we want and as little as we can tell the computer about how we want to do it, meaning we can build all kinds of wonderful reasoning tools and engines around declarative formats of data. And it's much harder to build those same kind of reasoning engines around, um, say, just raw code. Does it, get, does it get more difficult to express logic declaratively? So that's, uh, that's a good question, Carl, because what happens is, um, you know, declarative kind of files just kind of lay around. It's not like code that, you know, executes and, and runs and does something. Yeah. Well, a piece of declarative code, a uh, piece of declarative description is, is going to be interpreted by somebody, right? It's yeah. going to be interpreted by some engine. For example, the Avalon engine or the, the Windows Presentation Foundation engine. Wow. How can people say that? The Avalon engine. <laughs> I know. Interprets can interpret XAML files, and that's where the inter- right. that's where the imperative code is in the engine. Yeah, the engine itself is all the semantics of all of the tags that can show up in the declarative something. Right. So, so the question is, can you? Does it become more difficult to express, you know, logic? And by logic, I assume you mean you know, do this, then yeah, do branching, that, looping, that kind of thing. Sure. And so, of course, we have another engine from Microsoft that does that kind of thing. Um, it uses workflows, and that, of course, is called um, Windows Workflow Foundation, right? Right. And there, it has a whole declarative language for setting up logic, right? Okay. So is it more difficult? Well, the interesting thing about it is, and the thing, I think, that caused a bunch of the buzz around um, workflow at the PDC, that you have all kinds of interesting tools for flowing, for flowcharting workflows, and you can actually... Design them that way. You can read them. You can explain them to people that way. People that aren't computer scientists can look at them and have some hope of understanding them. Sounds like the short answer is no. Not only is it not difficult, but it's more clear. Well, the, the, I, I'm a big fan of declarative um, notations simply because I just really like to see what it is I want, mm. and I really like to leave it up to other people. Sometimes me, right, in a different part of my own program. Mm-hmm. But I like to leave it to another place to actually interpret that and do something with it. Well, this isn't anything new. I mean, Unix has been driven, um, or parts of Unix have been driven by these little uh, parsers and mini languages forever. Okay. So, so, anyway, so, you know, we've been talking about declarative versus imperative. Right, and getting back to the question of what, uh, you know, what what kinds of things at Microsoft are sparking your interest in this? So, uh, the things at Microsoft that are sparking my interest is I like the idea. I mean, you notice that more and more things coming from Microsoft are declarative, right? Whereas yes. before in WinForms, I'd sit down and write code, and even the designer would write code for me. Now with with uh, Avalon, I've got something that um, consumes and produces a declarative format, and mm-hmm. in fact. Even up to things like animations, which are very, you know, timer-based, very activity-based, um, are, de- are set up declaratively in Amazon. And you can read them and say, oh, when I get to this time, do that. When I get to this other time, do that. Or if I click this button, start this animation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the thing that is interesting to me 
is that more and more tools coming out of Microsoft are declarative. More and more tools by the kinds of developers that listen to your show, but the things that they're building themselves for their own projects are declarative. They're run by these little these little languages, either engines that are run that way or code generators that are run that way. And so when I think of model-driven development, I think of, well, up till now, we've been kind of, in the old days, it was all imperative, right? In the pet sold win 32 days, I wrote a giant switch statement, and it was all imperative, right? Right. Over time, more and more of these engines have sprung up both inside of Microsoft and outside, and more of these declarative formats for saying, here's what I want these engines to do when they're triggered. And so a lot more and more of our systems have become declarative. Now, we saw uh, a demo of the Expression Suite at uh, PDC this year. Yep. And, uh, you know, that that's what's coming to mind um, in terms of what's coming down the pike that is you know, r- truly declarative. I mean, it's all XAML Designer is the, is the beginning of the process. And then, heck, I mean, you can even do... Uh, you can even develop full-blown applications with, you know, a lot of a, a, a whole lot of a uh, uh, feature set just declaratively and by setting properties and without writing any code. And then finally, if there's any tweaking or any imperative code that has to be done, I imagine the imperative code that has to be written is a lot less when you shirk off a lot of the of the baked-in feature set to a declarative designer like that. But I was I was really blown away by it. And I remember, if you remember uh, the show during the PDC, the shows that we did, and we, David Treadwell, I believe we were talking to, and Paul Vick and Amanda Silver, you know, that was that was really one of the things that blew my mind at the PDC. And I can't wait to see that. So I, I don't blame you. I mean, the idea of these pushing more and more of my system logic, and not just UIs, but... You know, front ends, middle tiers, back ends. In fact, we've been driving our back ends with declarative uh, logic for a long time. I mean, when's the last time you wrote your own data store procedurally? My you own just what? Don't. Your own data store. Oh, my own data store, yeah. You don't, right? I mean, what you do is you walk up to SQL Server and you give it a model of the data that you would like stored, and it manages it for you. Right. And so, to me, as we move more and more into these declarative engines and formalize what it is that we're doing... That becomes model business development. And, and when we flip from Im- imperative code, which drives everything, and we flip to having frameworks and declarative models that um, drive things, you know, that's, I think, when we're talking about model-driven. Now, that doesn't mean we will, right? We may never. We may cling to our source code and, uh, you know, until our last, last breath. Right. But I think it's... Um, it's pretty interesting to contemplate a world where declarative languages hopefully, potentially, boost us to that next level of productivity. What do you think is um, the mental block, if you will, of of developers in, in moving over to this? I mean, it sounds like, you know, as a developer, we're control freaks, right? We love to write that, uh, you know, imperative code. And... This is sort of giving up, you know, one more level of giving up control, isn't it? I mean, you have to rely on the tool sets that you have, and if they aren't built, I suppose you build them but uh, or you find them. But, you know, the, all the code that you're ever going to write already has to be written. Now you just have to, you know, draw the lines and connect the dots, right? Well, so that's interesting. So I definitely uh, argue that, you know, declarative 
uh, models are really things that drive engines, and these engines have to be written. So right. how far do we go down, right? Are these engines built with other models and so on? Do we, I mean, eventually we need imperative lines of code because that's the thing that tells the computer what to do. But in the same way that we, you know, eventually need registers to hold variables that we pretend are on the stack, right. it doesn't mean we have to think about it that way. Sure. So, and of course, you know, if, I mean, we've had case tools and case vendors that come come at us for years that have said, hey, you know, just write it this way and we'll take care of the rest. And of course, that is the, you know, that's giving up control. And so the interesting thing that I've noticed with the set of tools that we're using is that kind of these models and these engines have kind of come up from the grassroots. It's not like anybody at Microsoft said, thou shalt write engines that are written that are driven by declarative anything. Right. It's just that that happened to be the best way to solve the problem. And more and more people are discovering that, again, both inside and outside of Microsoft. You know, it reminds me of uh, adopting object-oriented development, that as much as it was pushed on us for years and years, this was the right way, it very slowly from the grassroots got used differently than we were ever told to use. I mean, most people avoid inheritance like the plague. But bit by bit, we did subsume the technology and take advantage of it. Exactly right. And what's happening now is that more and more people are building their own code generators. Heck, I spent two and a half years of my life, um, you know, in a company that was building a code generator. Um, more and more people are, more and more technologies are driven by these declarative languages. It's just, you're right, it's happening from the grassroots. And so are you mandated to use any of these things? Absolutely not. Do any of the tools that Microsoft provides require you to use declarative styles? No. I mean, you can drive Avalon and uh, Workflow completely using imperative code if, if you want to, and that's fine. But if you start using these declarative tools, you start getting some interesting characteristics. Yeah, and, and you also find yourself probably writing a lot less code, I imagine. And that, of course, you know. That's a good thing. Yeah, because the fewer number of lines of code you write, the fewer you have to debug. Right. So yeah, uh, the fewer you have to care and feed. Yeah, that's right. Yes, care and feeding. Exactly right. You are, every single line of code is a dependent. You have to keep going, uh, keep with forever. They're never going to move out. <laughs> They're children that are going to live in your basement forever. Oh, that sounds so horrible. I know. Uh, Let's get back to domain-specific languages for a second, because I know this is a, another, you know, another thing on the horizon people are really excited about. Actually, domain-specific languages is just a formalism of this thing we've been doing already. Um, you know, the domain of uh, process and workflow. Yeah. Well, we have one of those, and we have a domain-specific language for it. It's called, uh, you know, the Windows workflow, right? Right. And the idea of laying out elements on UI. Well, we have a domain-specific language for that, too. So it's basically it's just a language that's constrained to the task at hand and, and, and more specific to the task at hand. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that just means that if you're doing, you know, accounting-related workflow, the only tasks on your toolbar are the things that allow you to do accounting-related workflow. You know, what's, what's weird about that to me as I'm thinking about this is uh, uh, does it really require uh, in well in the sense of workflow it does but you know if you were if you had a let's say you know a potato chip factory or whatever and you wanted to 
you know, write some software to deal with your potato chip machinery or whatever, you might create a domain-specific language for the potato chip industry or the, you know, the machinery or whatever that you're using. Why would you need to create a whole new language? Why wouldn't you just be able to write a component or an API or, or some, something else? I mean, why, why, what is it that makes you decide, I'm, I need a whole new language for that? You know, Rocky Lotka has been talking about this for a while. We need a new language, you know, that has constructs in it that, um, you know, make it easier for us to write our code. I mean, what are those concepts, constructs, if they're, if they're not, I mean, logic and workflow, if they're not, if they're not logic and flow control and all these kinds of things? Well, so it depends on what you mean by language. And of course, as soon as you get into the world of new abstractions, yeah. Right. Remember when we first moved into the world of object orientation, yeah. people were misusing the terms class and object inherit and so writing. Yeah. I mean, we just didn't have a shared language yet, right? But when so when you talk about the idea of new languages, right, for in, that are domain specific, many people, including me, would say that every time you sit down to write an application specific class library, write a set of classes yeah. that help you do something, you know, in accounting, say. You now you have a set of um, nouns. Those are the objects, and each of those objects has verbs that are associated with it. Sure. So is, is that, that a new language? Yeah. That's... No, it's a set of new nouns and verbs. Yeah. What's the language you string them together in? Well, if it's .NET, any old language you feel like, right? Right. If you're writing imperative code, so domain-specific languages to me means a set of um, nouns and verbs. Right, but and of course, you can express those as classes, or you can express them as models or elements of models. The presumption here is that the grammar that already exists is adequate to work with the nouns and verbs that you're using. Right. I think when you really get into the structure of language, you start thinking more that I need different orders, I need different relationships between these pieces, and I might grab onto like SQL is a very different construction of language. This is a different way to think about the data. It's actually lousy at doing a lot of the things that we use in conventional declare or uh, procedural languages, and uh, and vice versa. It's very tough to do set things in procedural languages. If Chris, can I ask you this question? Let's put on your wish wish list hat or whatever, and project out into the future. If you could imagine a system that you would like to walk up to to develop software. What would it look like? Well, it would uh, it would include a microphone in the bottom of the mouth so that I could pick it up and say, computer. <laughs> Just like, you know, in that old Star Trek. Yeah. Movie, I want that. So you really, you're, you're going all the way towards, I want to have a conversation with my computer, have it understand what I want, and at the end of the conversation, butching, there's my, there's my system. Actually, um, it's not too far to say... You know that we could we could empower non-programmers a lot better than we do. Yes, I, mean, I you agree. You can imagine, you know, you can imagine a graphics designer or even a business analyst sitting down and pulling, you know, in their own. I don't want to say forms designer. I want to say application designer. Yeah. And applications have forms that we string together, and they have data that we have to keep between forms and keep between sessions, and then they have data that have to be fetched from various data sources. And you could imagine. A business analyst getting really far 
with even slightly better tools than we have today to allow them to design an entire application completely declaratively. And of course, data binding is one of the, the yeah. big technologies that makes this work, right? Right. So data binding and some uh, broader um, tools, and suddenly they could go, boy, they could go a lot farther than they are today. I mean, you could go all the way to 80%. You know, yeah, that's 80, exactly what I was thinking. You'd get to the Pareto's law point. They'd get the 80% done, and then they'd be needing to turn to us to say, I That's now right. need to finish here, here, and here. Yes, and then what they do is they bundle it up, and they'd, they'd save it like a file in the file system, right? Like a spreadsheet. You can imagine doing this with spreadsheets today where the business guy goes as far as he can, which is pretty far, and in a lot of cases all the way with Excel. But then, you know, they need custom, you know, functions or custom data, that needs to be integrated. So they, what they do is they save a spreadsheet and they bundle it off and they send it off to some you know VBA developer. It's the same thing. The comparison I would give to you would be exactly that, except don't use Excel, use Access. This is my life in the early 90s <laughs> where guys were bringing me Access MDBs that they'd taken as far as they could go and said, okay, now um, can you make it work? Yeah. During the events Richard and I held at user groups all over the United States last year on the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2005 road trip, we asked the audience if anyone uses Telerik controls. Without fail, the hands would go up, and the feedback was clear. Telerik controls are awesome. The Q4 2005 version of their RAD control suite is out now, and I'm so excited to let you know that it comes with no less than five, that's right, five new products. These are Toolbar, Input, Calendar, Upload, and a unique control called RAD Window. The new volume also includes major updates of Telerik Grid, Combo Box, and Callback products. The Data Grid release is particularly interesting. Telerik RAD Grid now offers advanced out-of-the-box AJAX support, filtering, automatic insertion of records, support for the automatic data editing operations of ASP.NET 2.0 data source controls, and much more. Those of you who are interested in AJAX will be keen to learn that Telerik has also released a new version of their AJAX suite, RAD Callback, which offers considerable performance improvements and two new controls. That alone is loads of new stuff for a single release, isn't it? But obviously the guys at Telerik don't think so, as they've also added .NET 2.0 versions of all products of the suite. They are built and compiled for the official release of Visual Studio 2005 and are offered for free with every product license. So I suggest that you visit the Telerik website at www.telerik.com. Check out the online demos and download the new RAD control suite Q4 2005. Yeah, so here's the interesting thing. Um, so I have spent 
my whole, since April. I started my ju- new job on April 1st, of all things. And I have, since April, been working on this team that has been kind of digging into and understanding what this world could look like. And we have, you know, some thoughts and, you know, the fog isn't lifted, but it's thinning a little. And so um, what we spent our last few months doing, probably six months, is we actually took a really simple HR app, an app that we actually use internally at Microsoft, which has data from multiple sources and it has clients and we have multiple clients with different roles and it has security requirements and it's, you know, it's a fairly typical HR app in the sense of what it does mm-hmm. and the kind of data and interactions that it has. And what we did was we said, well, let's build this in a model-driven way. What does that mean? What can we do? What tools do we need? Let's build the tools. What modeling languages do we need? Well, let's build those. Let's, you know, what do we need to actually build this application? And we were actually able to, at each, it was a three-tier app, right? Um, UI, uh, service middle tier, and backend. At each tier, we were able to actually build the thing using declarative models. Wow. And we, and the code that we ended up with was a very small percentage of what we of the actual application, hmm. and so more and more we were adding features and and um, manipulating the application via the models, and less and less were we actually writing the code. Now, some Sounds of the great. people on the on the team really missed the code, and did they miss <laughs> the code because you know they love code and they can they can only do code? In which case, you know. Like assembly programmers, these people will die out. <laughs> well, there's also trust issues too, right? Absolutely. Do you trust Control. that this thing's doing what it's supposed to do? Yeah. Sure. And of course, this is all new, right? At least it was. So you can't possibly the- trust it, right? Yeah. And what happens when you go through the wizard and it spits out the thing, and then you get some obscure error? You know, then you get on the phone to your, uh, you know, your software wizard company, and some idiot, you know, <laughs> asks you a million questions that. So it's interesting. We actually used almost no wizards. Wizards turn out to be really handy when you're getting started, but yeah. very few people spend a lot of the time getting started. Most people spend most of their time working on existing stuff. So the kinds of things we were interested in, again, were models that either drove declarative engines like WebF or SQL Server, or that drove code generators. So my Those question the- was: my question was what? What would a, a system of the future that you would want to walk up to and uh, develop software look like? And you said, a microphone that I can have a, a discussion <laughs> with. So that's a wizard, right? So, oh, so again, were the, you being facetious? So the wizard is only there to, I mean, I don't think it is a wizard. Well, it's not a wizard in the classic sense of you, you know, answer some initial questions yeah. and then, I mean... You could think of case as a really, really classic case tools as a really complicated wizard where the input to the wizard is this big diagram and the output is your application. Yeah. I don't see that as being practical at all. At all. I mean, it's the wizard is only there to, for the few things that I know up front when I start my project. And that is just a tiny, tiny percentage of what I'm going to know over the lifetime of my project. And right. I have to have a system where I can make... Uh, decisions as I go along and even change my mind about things. Yeah, I guess the key to this tool has got to be re-entrancy, that I'm yeah, able to absolutely. go back into any project and pick up where I left off or go in a different direction. Yep, absolutely. And another key is i got to be able to, at any point, you know, dig in with code and 
and augment or extend or completely replace any of these engines that I don't want. Yeah. I mean, I have to be able to have that control. And in the exact same way that, you know, C-sharp programmers gained um, a ton of functionality and gave up very little control, when they needed that control, we didn't turn it off, right? We have P-invoke and com interop, right? We had let them have that control if they need it. Right. Well, and more relevantly, even further with C-sharp is this ability to subclass, to take control of this code. I can choose to use this .NET library, or I can choose to override it. I can work yep. with this provider model, or I can replace the pieces I don't like. Absolutely. And, of course, extensibility um, is a, has always been a big part of what Microsoft cares about. I mean, we just have never thought of ourselves as the people who have all the answers. Hey, Chris, is the mouse doomed? Is the mouse doomed? Actually, I uh, I must never use the mouse. I hate the mouse. I'm a key- keyboard guy. So, in fact, um, my mouse, for some reason, stopped working the other day because I, um, I filled up all my hard drive, and then <laughs> the system went all hooey until I freed up some space, and it never quite got better. So um, I actually sat, and my mouse didn't work for a couple hours, and that was fine. I never used it. Hmm. So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, is the mouse is the mouse going to be with us as a as a computer tool for a long time? Is there anything better on the horizon? I mean, you know. Oh my lordy! So I'm a so I I'm a big fan of alternate interfaces to computers. I mean, I absolutely live on my smell my smell phone, my smartphone. <laughs> I absolutely live on my smartphone. It was all about one handed, no mouse at all, just a bunch of choices that I worked through. In fact. The thing it reminds me most is, remember DOS slug menus? Mm-hmm. We had all those DOS apps, where you, the main menu, and it would have numbers, items, and you'd press oh, a number, yeah. and it would go to the next level and the next level, right? I mean, that's what smartphones are like. Right. And we didn't like it on the computer, but it works great on the smartphone. So, mm-hmm. you know, no mouse, and I like it that way. Whereas my media center PC, that's just a remote, right? Again, it's just right. choices and selections. I never use a keyboard or a mouse for either of those devices, and I love it. The uh, the interface that I, I I wait for is sort of like the tablet PC, but on a much bigger scale. Like, I would like to have the equivalent of a drafting desk size display with a pen. Totally. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny you should say that, because I just watched this, the keynote from CES that Bill Gates did, and he walked up to a screen that big, and he had no pen. He had a finger. Yep. Nice. You totally do that. And you could even imagine, I mean, a friend of mine, uh, Sean Van Ness, who works at Microsoft now on the tablet team, he actually built a prototype system where you could use the WinForms designer and just draw buttons and, and list boxes and combo boxes, and it would recognize your shapes and turn them into actual controls. Interesting. Yeah, so, once you start talking about field control, where you don't actually have to touch the screen, you just get close to it, you start thinking very minority report kind of interfaces. I wave my hands around, it does the thing. I actually like the pen because it's about control again. With touch screens, they seem a little clunky and you you know, if you lean on it with your elbow, now you're like you're pulling up something that you might not want to pull up. So I, I like the the localized effect that the pen has. Um I just like to see it on a bigger scale. So for me, I actually, um, I never was able to, I had a loner uh, tablet PC for a while. Yeah. And I was never, I mean, once I got to a document that I could read, it was fabulous. I loved it. There was no better interface. 
but actually getting to it, right, going to the start menu and or going to IE or the address bar and entering an URL because it was almost never in the favorites yep. list or having to log into some site to get to personalized content. I mean, actually, or navigate the file system to get to something. Yeah. I mean, the, getting to the content was horrible with the tablet, with a pen, because my handwriting is awful. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, if you've got if you've got more real estate on the screen, though, and also tools, you know, like uh, let's face it, WinFS, you know, to be able to, you, you don't have to navigate the hierarchy to find things. Um, man, I, I I can't wait for that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Windows Vista with virtual yeah. folders will have that. Uh, in fact, you know, if you're on the beta, you let me know, Carl. I'll get you a beta copy. No, I have a beta. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't wait for it to release. I can't really. You know what you're really asking, Carl? Here is what's the next UI, and uh, and that's a a whole other can of worms. The idea that we would bring these, you know, this is what Microsoft really brought to the table was bringing software development into the GUI era, where we actually used a UI to do software development, yeah, rather than you know, good old text editor to compile and link. You know, now we're finally in a real editor environment. And model-driven development, to me, finally starts offering the possibility that we would do something other than write code. Yeah, I'm really interested in what people see as the future of software development. And model-driven development seems to be, you know, one of these future-oriented technologies of the way that software is going to be written in the not-too-distant future. And so, you know, the reason I asked that question is because I've got some ideas and people think I'm crazy. I've had these ideas for years that... That eventually you you know it's going to become so you know there's going to be so many engines of the goo already written and it now becomes a matter of being able to express yourself and to be able to understand have the computer understand what you want that eventually you'll be able to walk up to a system and maybe not you know speaking might not be the most efficient way to do this you may have to have somebody you speak to who you know draws the you know, draws the diagrams or the, or the whatever, but you know, in a matter of, of, uh, you know, a few hours of going through your specifications, if they're done in a standard way, you know, out can pop your application. And that, that day is the goal, I think is the goal of software development, which is, uh, directly juxtaposed against our career as software developers, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, so that's interesting. I mean, the thing that you hinged all of that working on is that some engine can understand what you want. And of yes. course, there's no way that we can understand what you want from imperative code. We just can't. Right. Imperative code is all about doing things, and then as a side effect, the things that you want happen. Declarative models are all about saying in a domain-specific way, here's what I want. I don't care how you make it happen. Right. Yeah, I'm surprised they don't call it results-driven programming. Here is where I want you to get to. Yeah, that sounds like some, some, you know, marketing slang. Who knows, by the time we shift something, it might be called, you know, results-driven. You throw in your favorite buzzwords, right? I don't even want to. Well, wanna, you yeah. know, you being a program manager and all, I know you've got to have a little results-driven thinking when you're working with people, where you're not telling them what to do. You're saying, here's where we want to get to. How you get there is up to you, you know, within certain constraints. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, that's all of engineering, right? I mean, we need... Well, here we are. We know what the problem is. We need a solution. Now we need to figure out how to get there. And, of course, um, the thing that always uh, freaked me out about uh, Avalon programming when I was writing that book was suddenly all of these 
constraints of what I'm used to when I build an app are all gone. Right? I know what a Windows app looks like, or at least I did until I got to Avalon, where it could look like anything. I literally had no boundaries that I could discern. That freaked me out. Engineering is all about those restrictions. So are you excited about uh, the expression products? Oh, man. I've seen um, guys that know how to do it. Because you know me, right? I, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I don't use the mouse, right? So, <laughs> I, and, you know, I use the, the 101 key text wizard that comes with the, you know, the development environment. Yeah. And we didn't have any designers when I was writing the book for Avalon. We just didn't. So I've learned all of the ammo that I needed to and all the constructs, and I typed them all into XML by hand, raw, right? And that was fine, and that was wonderful, but I've seen, and I can, I'm pretty productive at it, but I've seen guys that can really use the expression product, and it's amazing what they can do in such a short amount of time. Yeah. It's amazing. I was impressed. And, you know, you really, you're bumping against a key issue here, which is that there's some talent in this one way or another. With the expression designer, certainly, I, I'm going to I'm going to be terrified of some of the ugly things that people build with it. That was the first thing I thought when I saw it. Was, <laughs> Me too. Wow, a whole new opportunity to make really bad user interfaces. <laughs> but I think the other thing is true when it comes to the programming side of the equation, which is the ability to describe a program well or describe a set of tasks well is a skill all by itself. It's not that simple to do. Yeah. So the interesting thing about um, as we move into declarative languages. Um, is that you can start declaring things and worry about how humans are going to react to uh, reading it. And, of course, I don't mean developer humans, which are a whole subclass, right, which can read code. (laughs) And, of course, you should write your code so that other developer humans can read it. But I mean actual humans. I mean, there is some, in these declarative languages, there is some hope that with the appropriate visualization, an actual human could walk up and, and look at it and say, yes, that's right. Real mortals could read it. Real mortals could walk up and read it and understand it, and even better, tell you where you got it right and where you got it wrong. Yeah, contribute to it. Yeah. yeah. The, thing, the thing I just don't want to see, Chris, is, you know, um, you know, like when you call for information or something or you're interacting with your cell phone, you're trying to tell it to dial a number, and it says, did you say blah? I mean, can you imagine the painful process of sitting down with a software designer wizard system like this that's using the voice and when it, you know, going through this painful series of questions with a computer that's, you know what I mean? That could get really oh, mean, the, So the, an audio wizard that would say, I think you said checkbox. Is this correct? <laughs> say one. Did you say yes? No. Did you say no? Yes. You can also imagine it saying something like, it looks like you're trying to write Hello World. Can I be of assistance? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or how about this one? This program is remarkably similar to your competitor, blah, blah, blah. Would you like to see a comparative analysis? <laughs> <laughs> hey, actually, that one would be really cool. Even better would be, would you like me to drop in all of their features into your code so that you can c- concentrate on differentiation? That would be the fun one. I want that one. Well, imagine a declarative engine where it comes back and says, you want Word. (laughs) (laughs) It just finds the product that matches the requirements you collected. Yeah, Perfect. I like it. So it's interesting. So we have been talking in a fairly abstract way for, I don't know, an hour, two hours, four. I don't know. I've lost all It's been about an hour. But, um, you know, as people used to my writings or, you know, hearing me or whatever, know I'm a fairly concrete fellow. And in fact... um, 
I was hired into this team um, by uh, the guy who started this as a way to um, make sure that the thing that we came up with was developer-centric. Because, you know, I w- I'm still one of those guys, those developers in the world, who hears the word model and just fuzz over. I don't hear the rest of the sentence because we've been fed this whole idea of models as a way to solve our problem forever. Yeah, so you're not and a so believer. I'm not a believer. I never was a believer. So, you know, he, he used to say that he hired me as his grumpy programmer. I'm the guy. <laughs> I'm the guy who's, I'm one of the guys, and of course we have a bunch of people on, this, on the team that share the same role, but I'm, I take my role as, you know, the guy who looks at the thing and says, would I actually want to write software with that or not? I take that very seriously. And until the answer is yes, I will be railing against the Microsoft machine. Well, uh, thank you. That's that's great. I'm glad you're there. It's a little service I provide, no charge. Yeah, hardly <laughs> little. That's great. We need more of you guys in there. Actually, the interesting <laughs> thing that I found when I went into Microsoft, because it's been, uh, gosh, it's been three years now. Wow. Years. In, in, yeah, in, in uh, April, I think it'll be three years. Um what I found was that there is just an enormous number of people that actually really cared about our customers. Yeah. In fact, what I'm finding the rarity is the guy that doesn't care or the, or the gal that doesn't care about our customers. I mean, there's, if there's not the monopolistic engine that you've, uh, you've heard about. These people actually care. I, ha- I haven't heard that. No, you never have? Oh, well. No, <laughs> hey, Chris, we got to wrap it up. You got any... Uh... Got any cool tools that uh, you've downloaded or you want to share or anything neat you've seen on the web lately? Actually, I just posted about this on my blog today, and I know I'll sound like a corporate shill, but I'm really falling in love with Live.com. Live.com, Windows Live? Yeah, the Windows Live service, it's just Live.com, and I've tried a bunch of those portals, Google, Yahoo, all of those portals, and I've set them up and whatever, and then I never go back. And with Live.com, I made no commitment. I just... I just went there and I put like a couple of news feeds on there and then I found I would go back and then I'd add a couple more and I'd go back and I'd add the little clock or, you know, the stock quotes that I cared about and then I'd go back and and now they have all of these cool gadgets which are little, little hunks of code that actually do things and I'm just falling in love. I go back all the time. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'll have to go check it out just because yeah. you said so. So here's what I want to know. Okay. I want to know what TV I'm supposed to buy. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, no. Well, because, I... Here's, let me tell you, right? Because the reason I ask is my whole entertainment system, I just moved a few months ago. My whole entertainment system is um, my big screen analog television and my Xbox. And of course, it. because it's an Xbox, it's also a... Um, a media center PC extender so right. I can get to all of my media. And that's it. That's all I have. I used to have the whole surround sound thing and 27 remotes and DVD players and blah, blah, blah. And I just threw it all away. And it's just now Xbox and TV. And I love it. So you have but an Xbox, you have the TV. What do you use? Headphones? No. TV has speakers. Okay. <laughs> all right. Shocking to realize, but it's true. So is it a, what, a DLP projector TV or... No, this is like a five-year-old, thirty-six-inch tube television. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, I'm not. I thought you had like a big setup. 
I thought I, when well, we... all of the stereo was big and the screen itself was big, okay. but I don't have the um, I don't have the flat screen yet. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what I got. I got a, a Hitachi forty-two inch plasma, and I love it. And it was it was the nicest looking one in the store. And they told me they they can't keep them in stock. They sell way too many of them. Wow. So Rory says. Was I think it was Rory who told me that plasma TVs are bad because they suck a lot of electricity. Yes, they do. Uh-huh. And they run hot, and they have short lifespan. Yes. However, their price is excellent for what they are now. They used to be very expensive. They come down quite a bit. The equivalent screen in an LCD is going to cost you three times as much money. And the equivalent LCD can't go as big. LCDs uh, tend to rip, if you know what that means, video-wise, at bigger sizes. So they really don't make LCDs work at any bigger than 32 inches or so. But what I think I heard you just say was I should buy myself um, a 42-inch high-def plasma and then plan to throw it away when it goes bad? Actually, yeah. what I would do, if I, had it to, if I had the right room, I would buy a high-def projector. You know, I mean, I did all this over Christmas when people were asking me these questions. The problem is by the time you get to a 1080-capable projector, you're talking about a $10,000 device. Good Lord. Really? I, yes. I saw what, I swear I saw one online for like two grand. Yeah, not, not in those kinds of reses. And of course, I also, I mean, you know, I will have my Xbox 360 to drive the thing as well, too, right? So, you know, what yeah. is the right TV to get that works well? You know, the, the, the best way I found for anybody to buy TVs is exactly how Carl did it. You go into the big box store and you look at all the sets till you find one that makes you warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah. <laughs> how very scientific. They actually... Well, there's really no substitute for loving the image. Yeah, but how do I know about the right inputs? And I don't know. Who knows? I mean, there's... Chris, all you got to do is call Richard before you go to the store. That's all I'm saying. He's the That's toy boy. I, he I knows it all. Call number. I entered the, the conference call phone number, and you made me lecture about model-driven programming for an hour until I could ask Richard <laughs> what television I could <laughs> Yeah, once you've seen the three or four sets you really like the look of, you can certainly send them to me, and I'll give you a rundown of what you're going to miss or love or hate in, in each one of them, no question. You could actually do that as a bit on Mondays, Richard. Why don't you do that? Yeah. We're recording Mondays in about three hours. Maybe maybe that would be a great uh, a great primer. So I should run to the store. Yeah, the reality that I've found with televisions is that it's the viewer's choice, what they want to look at. And I would say, honestly, as soon as you're into the larger sets, they've all got the features you want. You almost cannot go wrong. Yeah. Right? It's, do you like the vendor? Are you going to be able to get it fixed if it breaks down? Uh, how avant-garde is the technology? You know, the big thing when I look at particular technologies is how many different vendors are using this thing right now? If there's only one, I'm shy of it, right? Sony sure. is usually the worst culprit for that that they come up with a technology and they won't share it. Mm-hmm. And so it's unstable and they're likely to abandon it. But as soon as you see three major manufacturers using DLP, DLP's come of age. Go take a good long look at it. Yeah, it doesn't look as good, though, as a plasma. Yeah. But then it, this all depends on your eyes. Some people like it, some people don't. Right? Different people look at them differently. So here's the beauty. I happen to have a 10-year, so low-quality, low-disk space MP3 sounds great to me. Oh, man, that must suck. 
No, he doesn't right. know. He has no idea. He can't hear the difference. You know, I've got yeah, friends oh, who are yeah. in the movie industry, and they can only go to certain movie theaters because they see every flaw in the picture. See, that's horrible. Yeah. To me, that's like saying, you know, I tried prime rib, but it just tastes like jello pudding, and I can't tell the difference, so I don't eat yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's, just, it's great for me because I can fit, I can fit thousands of uh, songs on my cell phone. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't tell the difference. You're breaking my heart. Yeah, I could almost keep the notes and the lyrics in a text file, and that would be good enough. Okay, Chris, thanks for coming back. You, uh, you should, you know, you're about due to, to be a, a stand-in host again, so I can take a vacation. Happy to. Just let me know. Okay, and uh, thanks, Richard, and thanks to to everybody out there in .NET Rocks land. Have a great week, and we will see you next week. Don't forget to check out Hansel Minutes and DNR TV. Bye. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. <laughs>